Good morning, good afternoon, whichever one we're at at the moment. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, when Marianne called me whatever months ago it was and said we have a speaker and we're looking for someone who'd like to partner on bringing him here to us, um, I somewhat was listening to her. And then she said, uh, the speaker is Carrie Olitsky. And at that moment, before she even finished the sentence, I said, sure, of course the Bureau will do that. And I said it not because, oh, 14 years ago or so, um, me and my new bride, Rabbi Lewis, are living in New York and we're in graduate school and we go to see Rabbi Olitsky speak probably six to eight times somewhere in that. Uh, and see him around the community and I know what a dynamite speaker he is and how wonderful it will be for us to, to experience that. It's not because uh, in the mid-90s I was a social work student at USC. I had an internship at the House of Yeruhu, which is a drug rehabilitation center located right in the heart of Watts, right in the worst of the worst, and I'm doing therapy groups, not really knowing what I'm doing, and I come in armed with a book written uh, by Rabbi Olitsky um, on uh, meditations for people and, and, and really topic starters for people who um, have drug addiction. I fell in love with him through that lens. Um, uh, and it's not just because he's now running the Jewish Outreach Institute, which in a nutshell um, is on the forefront of kind of redefining and paving a vision of what the Jewish community needs to be working toward and to achieve. Um, I, I did it because, uh, and the reason why my staff is here today, the reason why many Jewish educators, directors of Jewish education from across Orange County are here today is because we have begun a discussion, um, really that started with the realization, which is we are not doing well enough as a community attracting Jews who are not currently engaged in our community, and the ones that we do engage, we're not doing well enough at retaining them. And we need to rethink that, and we need to re-strategize that. And so when Marianne said, Rabbi Olitsky is available, I said, who, we need to bring in as many experts as possible who are exactly addressing this very question, which is we're not succeeding, let's admit that, and let's move forward and figure out how we can be successful. And I hope, um, not only is he gonna be great for us today, but I hope this will start many speakers that we'll bring to our community who can talk on this subject and get all of us who own this problem collectively and get the discussion going even further. And so with that, I turn it over to Rabbi Olitsky. Thank you so much for being here. So I'm gonna to try to do this for two reasons. One is I have a very loud voice, and so I like to modulate the microphone, and also because you wanna keep this, these words for posterity, I'm not sure why, but I'll do this anyhow, and this way you can do both. If you can't hear me or if I'm speaking too loudly, just let me know. You know I try never to use a microphone because I do have a very loud voice. And I always say that I have a very loud voice because my father was hard of hearing and I was raised with him who was hard of hearing and my mother used to remind me even before your father went deaf you used to yell and scream anyhow. <laughs> so <clears throat> I really want to thank you for being here and giving me the opportunity to share some somewhat provocative ideas with you about the Jewish community. 
Uh, what I'm going to do first is something that I used to teach my students at HUC in education never to do, and that was to pass out something which would preoccupy listeners while at the same time you're trying to speak. But because we're not using a PowerPoint, I wanted you to at least have some of the highlights of what we're going to talk about, and then for those of you who diligently want to take notes about every single thing that I say, then you'll have something to write on and a guide um, for you to start with. So when historians in the future write about this period of time in American Jewish history, they're going to call this the era of transition. The era of transition. We don't know when this era will conclude. The only thing that we can be certain of is that when this era does conclude, the Jewish community will look nothing like it did when the era began. That's the nature of the rapidity of change in which we're experiencing. Lots of people will blame the current change that we're experiencing on the 2008 financial debacle. And yet all that financial issue did was it expedited the various things that were already in place in the Jewish community. We can blame things on the economy. The economy was not the cause of it, and the economy is not the cause of the challenges that we're facing. The only thing that the economy is doing is revealing certain things to us in a more expeditious way than we would have realized and before. The biggest issue at stake today is that we have entered a period of time in which the generation of my children, some of your children, some of perhaps you, who are in their 30s, it's the first generation of fully American American Jews. The first generation of fully American American Jews. And so all of the institutions in the Jewish community, which may have represented something for us, may have represented something for my parents' generation or even my grandparents' generation, doesn't represent the same thing for them. In short, the generation of my children, of our children, are not going to support the edifices that their parents nurtured and in some cases actually built. The generation of my children is not prepared to support the institutions that their parents nurtured and built. It doesn't mean that they are not interested in the American Jewish community. I am actually very optimistic about the future of the American Jewish community, and that's really the topic or the conversation that we're having today. What I'm worried about is the adaptive change or the ability to make adaptive change among the community's leadership, because only with adaptive change will these institutions reimagine themselves and move into the future. Now, when did these changes actually begin? When did this community become so fully American that they no longer became interested in the same, we'll call them value constructs, of their parents? Some may argue that this started in the 1920s with the Johnson Immigration Act, the very beginning of what fully became an American Jewish community. By restricting immigration quotas in the United States, it forced the American Jewish community to become more fully American. Some may argue, if we move ahead, it was 1948. The start of the Jewish state changed the dynamics in not only Israel, but also in the United States and among American Jews. Or we could look at 67. The 67 war was certainly a watershed event in 
the identity of American Jews, you first started seeing in New York even Orthodox Jews walking around without baseball caps for the first time because they were okay about it. You saw Jews wearing head coverings that might not identify religiously with Judaism, but use the kippah, use the yarmulke for the first time as a sign of Jewish identity and not of religious commitment. Some people will go on and on and determine when those periods of time will occur. I actually believe that the most important cultural shift in the American Jewish community took place in the last decade with the introduction of Napster. What's Napster? Right. Napster was, or is, a, I should say was because it's not in business any longer, a file sharing platform particularly for music. Now, we're not going to debate at this point either the morality or the legality of Napster. But what Napster did, even when it was shut down finally by the authorities, is it spawned a complete change in American culture which crept into American Jewish culture. What it did was it broke the stranglehold on the music industry. So no longer were music company executives going to determine the listening habits of individual listeners. If you wanted to listen in a particular way, you no longer had to buy a, an album. Remember those? You no longer had to buy an album. Instead, you could download specific songs the way you wanted to, in what order you wanted to. The brilliance of Steve Jobs in this particular case was not iTunes, which this broadcast will be on, but in fact the iPod. It needed a device in which you could receive those kinds of things to create your own playlist. If you didn't have a device on which to listen, the music downloading was of no value at all. Now, how, what does that have to do with the American Jewish community? Well, think about the way we've built our institutions. If you take the most common American Jewish institution, which is what? The synagogue. The most common American Jewish institution manipulated its membership in order for you to, deter, to disallow you to determine your own playlist. In other words, if you wanted to come to high holiday services, you had to become a member. If you wanted to bar mitzvah your child, you had to become a member, etc., etc. All of a sudden, people weren't interested in other institutions no matter what those institutions were, whether it was the music industry or the American synagogue, and you can read any other American institutions the same way, to determine what the personal playlist would be. And that's how I came to this notion of an individualized Judaism called playlist Judaism. In other words, I want to determine what my Judaism is going to look like and how I'm going to navigate Judaism in the community. I don't want anybody else doing so. That's how we got to this particular place in time. If I were to say to you, how many of you are on Facebook? Raise your hand. Okay. Notice almost every hand um, was raised, and actually this population, this age cohort, is the fastest growing segment of Facebook, and it's pushing out the younger, 
population who are looking for a different platform in order to do so. We have that habit. Once we older people get involved with something, younger people are no longer interested. <laughs> in any case, if I were to say to you, um, you now have to pay for Facebook, I don't know how many of you would also raise your hand unless you've seen the demonstrated value for participation on any online platform. If you take something like LinkedIn, which is a platform people use for resume sharing and business networking, etc., once you see the value of it, then maybe you'd be interested in a premium LinkedIn subscription. We in the Jewish community do it backwards. We say, join our institution and then discover the benefits of participating instead of leading with value first and then you will determine whether or not you want to participate, whether it be financially or whatever. Now, what are the characteristics of successful institutions in the future given what we know about playlist Judaism and given how American culture continues to influence American Jewish culture and community. The first one is that our missions must drive our institution. And here I'm not talking about mission statements. I'm talking about mission. If I were to say to you, whatever institution you belong to or participate in, what does it stand for? What's the driving force? It might have been, you know, you referenced uh, the fact that the URJ Biennial is, is, a, is in San Diego right now. It may have been appropriate a generation ago for you to say, oh, this is a reform synagogue and it meant something and therefore you may be interested in affiliating as a result. It doesn't mean anything any longer to say this synagogue is reform or this synagogue is conservative or this synagogue is orthodox. People aren't responding to institutions the same way. What's the specific mission that drives that? The, one of the most successful institutions in the American Jewish community today is the American Jewish World Service led by Ruth Messenger. It serves the world's poor. That's its primary mission. One of the side benefits, what they call in the pharmaceutical industry off-label benefits, is that it also attracts young people, that elusive cohort of young people that the organized Jewish community hasn't figured out how to reach. And the reason it reaches that population is because it doesn't intend to. <laughs> it reaches it because it's very clear about its mission, it's very transparent about its mission. There are no hidden agendas. It's not a meat market, whether you spell meat market M-E-E-T or M-E-A-T. It's not cover for preventing intermarriage in the community. It's only crystal clear about one particular mission. Can we say that about your particular institution without defining it and making sure that that institution has value? Sometimes when I say this to synagogues, they said, oh, we're about community. Well, what do I need community for from the synagogue? I can get it from the LA Fitness Club where I go and work out. Right, Ari, are you here? Okay. <laughs> what I'm looking for is community with meaning and now you have to define what that meaning is by participating in that institution. It's not enough to suggest that there's an affinity towards these institutions. We have to move our conversation in the community away from 
obligation to benefit. That's the other thing that playlists have taught us. What's the personal benefit of me participating in your institution? And if I'm intermarried, which we'll talk about in a few moments, I'm making a real existential decision about raising my children. Why should I raise them within the context of the Jewish community or even better within the context of your institution? What's the benefit of that child in that institution? And quite frankly, if I'm a non-Jewish parent within this constellation of an intermarriage, how am I going to benefit from this institution? My colleague Sam Gordon, who is a congregational rabbi in Chicago, whose congregation is primarily made up of intermarried families, says to me, what you don't understand is, I'm everybody's rabbi in this synagogue. People look at me whether they're Jewish or not as their rabbi, so I have to make sure that I serve them as well. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about in terms of missions. Now, leadership groups such as federations that is represented on this campus can lead the way if they're willing to turn themselves inside out and stop doing business as usual. They still too often go on automatic pilot in terms of the way things used to work. And surely the campaign demonstrates that they can't do business as usual anymore. Why do I need a local institution if I want to give money to your bureau why do I need a local institution to serve as that middle person in order for me to give money to that bureau if I believe that there's value in that bureau? If I'm interested in supporting an orphanage in Ukraine, maybe I'm not going to run so quickly there, although frankly I've been to the Ukraine and I'm going to the state of Georgia, the um, former Soviet Republic of Georgia next month. So people travel and they're looking for things. So the Federation has to change its um, its position in the community just as every other institution has to. When we talk about mission, what was the mission of the Jewish hospital originally? Anybody know? Do you know? No, not the Jewish hospital in Denver, but any community Jewish hospital, what was its purpose? No, it wasn't to care for people who were ill. Exactly. Jewish doctors were prohibited from practicing and, and Jewish patients were not welcome inside. The first Jewish hospital, 1850, Cincinnati, Ohio. It was because the Deaconess Hospital, would, also in Cincinnati, was, prohibited, was prohibiting patients who were Jewish from being cared for in that hospital. Now, is there any need for either of those principles today? No, so there is no Jewish hospital in Cincinnati any longer. It's now a $600 million foundation, $600 million. So in almost every community, there is no reason for a Jewish hospital. They had a purpose, they don't have a purpose any longer, and now they either reimagine themselves or they transform themselves. In this case, they transform themselves into institutional foundations. If I look at the JCC, what was the purpose of the JCC, or why, when it was created? Not really. It was not a counterpart to the YMCA. What was it? Citizenship for new immigrants. Exactly. It was to Americanize immigrants. It reimagined itself as a fitness center 
during one of its period of time? Can the JCC commit, compete with free market enterprises like LA Fitness today? No. It's very difficult. So it's got to either reimagine itself or determine whether it needs to change. Every institution in the American Jewish community today is at risk and has to reimagine itself if it is to survive, including, or most importantly, the most plentiful of those institutions, meaning the synagogue. There are close to 2,000 synagogue buildings, liberal synagogue buildings. I'm not even talking about the Stieblach of the Orthodox community and other kinds of institutions. There are close to 2,000 synagogue buildings in the United States like that. And all of those real estate holdings are rather extravagant. Many of them are architecturally significant. But if you look at the budgets of most synagogues, the two largest budget items are the physical plant and everything that goes around it, not just staff, but professional staff. When I was in the pulpit in West Hartford, Connecticut, it was a beautiful Byzantine structure from the 1920s, architecturally significant. The salaries of the rabbis were equivalent to the salaries of the maintenance staff. Now, there were more maintenance men than there were rabbis in the congregation, but they had to invest a great deal to maintain that physical facility. The question is, if you were in the real estate business, would you invest the same way in buildings today, the way our ancestors did? And yet, are we prepared to look at those issues the same way we once did? My alma mater, Hebrew Union College, has four campuses for 100 rabbinical students. I think the total number of of stateside liberal rabbinical students in the United States is under 500. And yet that supports um, five institutions, one of which has four buildings. We have to take these drastic questions and address them fully. Um, we have to turn ourselves inside out. One of the things that I talk about a great deal is what I call public space Judaism. Most institutions spend most of their time programming within the four walls of their institutions, and yet the majority of Jews and those within the constellation of the Jewish community spend most of their time outside of those institutions. That doesn't make sense. How can you serve customers or potential customers if they don't come inside of your institutions? It makes no sense at all. And yet the only institution that has made a habit of being outside of their institutions is Chabad. The American Jewish community, this is not a debate about Chabad, the American Jewish community has defaulted the public celebration of Hanukkah to Chabad. It's defaulted what has become the official national Jewish holiday. If you think about it, if you go to the mall down the street, and I'm sure there's a mall down the street, <laughs> if you go to the mall down the street, I'm sure there's a big Christmas installation, and I'll bet you there's a big Hanukkah installation there as well. Why? Because we have fully become American Jews, and Hanukkah has become the national Jewish holiday. It has become the national Jewish holiday. Its observance has, been, uh, has eclipsed Passover as the most observed holiday within the Jewish community, and we have entered what is now called Hanukkah season. 
<laughs> it used to be Hanukkah was eight days long. It isn't eight days long anymore. It's a month long. It begins at Thanksgiving when Christmas season begins, and it begins when the, and it ends when the Christmas decorations are taken down after the first of the year. That's how we know we've entered that place. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, the implications are that besides this notion of public space Judaism and beginning to program outside of the four walls of the institution, I mean, think about it, Passover. So the JCC programs at the JCC, the synagogue programs at the JCC, and we teach communities how to do it at the grocery store because that's where people are the Sunday before Passover. If you think about the time that you spend in various institutions, most of those institutions aren't Jewish. And yet, when was the last time you encountered a Jewish institution in those places? Uh, two weeks ago, I was in St. Augustine, Florida, and I went to a, an arts festival, their annual, national, their annual um, arts festival. It was beautiful, beautiful day, hundreds and hundreds of people. There even was an artist there who was displaying Jewish works. You know what was missing from the Jewish community? I mean, from the public arts festival? The Jewish community. There wasn't a menorah there. There wasn't a presence of the Jewish community, but there were thousands of people there. We have to go where people are. The definition of outreach, unlike the reform movement, which suggests that the outreach means relating to interfaith families, outreach is a definition is simple. Go to where people are. That's where it is. Or in the 1960s, we used to say, go to where people are at. Meaning it wasn't just a physical um, going, it was also a metaphysical or meta-rational going, actually where they are, where their mindset is. So if we're talking about this notion of going to where people are at, what's the environment in which we're working? Well, the first thing is that Judaism has entered the marketplace of ideas, perhaps for the first time in Jewish history. <coughs> Jewish culture has entered the marketplace as, as well. Great examples. When the bagel left becoming a Jewish New York food and it became a fast food, that was an example of Jewish culture entering the marketplace. When hummus was voted the snack food of the NFL, <laughs> which it was, good protein, you know, that's an example of Jewish slash Israeli, but there's a, not much of a difference in American Jewish culture today when that becomes part of American Jewish culture. There's only one institution in the United States that understands that Judaism has entered the marketplace of ideas, and that's the controversial Kabbalah Center. That institution, again, without evaluating it for a moment, is the only institution that says Judaism has something to teach people who may not be interested in converting to Judaism and yet we're still going to teach them those Jewish ideas. In the same way, when I was in college, I studied Greek philosophy and other kind of philosophical systems. It's the same way in which the largest number of American-born Buddhists are Jews. The largest number of American-born Buddhists are Jews. Some people call themselves Boo-Jews or Jew-Boos. Because they're taken by Eastern thought. It's not historically um, incompatible with Judaism. In other words, there were no conflicts historically between Jews and Buddhists the way there were between Jews and Christians or, or other groups like that. And so it seemed to be compatible. This isn't about theology. This is really about compatibility. But when was the last time you saw a Jewish institution enter the marketplace in order to teach Judaism? At a time in our history when 
there are more people interested in Judaism and Jewish thought than any other time. We've made it more difficult than any other time to access Judaism. A lot of it has to do with the, um, the challenges, I'll call them, put forth by the chief rabbinate in Israel, which has devolved onto the American Orthodox rabbinate in addition to which was never relevant, the conservative and reform rabbinate and reconstructionist rabbinate. But certainly, now the Orthodox rabbis in the United States are not permitted to uh, convert people and be accepted by the chief rabbinate in Israel. And we're not even talking about conversion. And as I've made in the press recently, there are no alternatives to religious conversion in, the United, in, in Judaism. Meaning, rabbis and Judaism as religion has hegemony over entry into Jewish peoplehood. And so these thousands and thousands of people, even within the Jewish community that don't believe in God or are not religionists or don't really want to practice Judaism as a religious practice, are not finding a way inside of the community and we're neglecting them. And I'm speaking as an observant, ritually practicing rabbi who believes in God. But I also understand that there has to be a place for people who don't see the world the same way I do. And in this marketplace is a free market economy. In the past, institutions thought that they were competing with one another for the interest of Jews and in the orbit of the commu Jewish community. They're not competing with one another any longer. They're competing in the marketplace. Why? Because the synagogue, for example, is no longer the only institution that I need in order to access Judaism. And I'm not even talking about the internet. I'm talking about accessing it in a hundred different ways. I don't need the synagogue as the sole purveyor of Judaism or, or Jewish knowledge any longer. There are lots of opportunities for me to access Judaism. And unless the synagogue and the other institutions come with me to those places, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not even talking about the work of Synagogue 3000 and my colleague Ron Wolfson not too far from here who talks about people, what I like to say, running in your direction, meaning most of the work of becoming a welcoming institution, which is a dire necessity, is still determined by people who cross the threshold. In other words, running in your direction. Synagogue 3000 and other institutions aren't worried about the majority of people who aren't going to even cross the threshold of even institutions like this, which the community has deluded itself into believing that this is a low threshold institution. It may be a lower threshold institution than a synagogue, but don't delude yourself into believing that it's a low threshold or a no threshold institution. Every Jewish communal institution has a threshold, a significant threshold for people to cross over. It may be because of their background. It may be because of the history they've had with institutions. It can be for a thousand reasons. We've deluded ourselves into believing that the people who sit in this room and the people like us who sit in other rooms are the community's majority. In fact, it's the community's minority. And yet we speak of ourselves as if we are the majority and we speak as if we are speaking for the majority and we're not. And those are really big issues for the Jewish community to get their arms around. So what does it mean to compete in a free market economy? It means that we have to become competitive. We have to begin to answer the question of this generation. If the question of last generation was how to be Jewish 
And I had a very successful book called The How-To Handbook for Jewish Living, which is still given out to bar but mitzvah kids around the country. It was adopted by the U.S. Navy to teach its non-Jewish chaplains as to how to serve the Jewish service personnel. So I have an invested interest in how to be Jewish, except that that was the, genera that was the question of the last generation. The question of this generation is why be Jewish? Why be Jewish in the context of this institution or this institutional framework? And if your institution, the one that you participate in, can't answer that question, it can't answer the question in every single thing that it does as an institution, then it's not going to attract me and it's not going to attract the generation of my children for sure. They want you to help understand not my obligations as a Jew to you, but what you're going to do for me. President Kennedy may have gotten it right in 1960 for America. He, didn't, he would not have gotten it right for the American Jewish community in 2013. It's not about what the community, it's not about what I can do for the community. It's really about what you can do for me. Now, you may say that that's part of Facebook culture, and it is, but that's what has influenced the generation that we're trying to reach. Now, <clears throat> this generation is not as elusive or aloof as we think it is. In the last 10 years, there have been 600 startups in the American Jewish community, 600. And most of those startups have been by the so-called millennials. And what that means is several things. First, it means, as I said, that they're not elusive or loose, aloof and they're not disinterested in the Jewish community. And secondly, what it means is that you're not meeting their needs as an organized community. That's why they felt they had to go out on their own. Now the question is, will those institutions gain traction and will they eclipse the existing community institutions? Will they be absorbed in the Jewish community institutions? It's not clear to me. That's what historians are going to write about. But what happens to those institutions and what happens to the existing institutions in that relationship is in fact up to all of us. Are we prepared to respond to those kinds of things? Because everybody's talking about how there are communities, institutions that are losing traction. In my own community in New Jersey where I live, a local Schechter school went out of business. Went out of business for a lot of reasons, but people see that as a sign of the diminution of the community. At the same time, there's a Hebrew charter school in the community that is blossoming. Now, I understand that Hebrew charter schools are different than and cannot replace day schools, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reality on the ground, and that is that hundreds of kids <clears throat> are now getting a Hebrew cultural education, whereas when the Schechter school closed, it had fewer than 100 kids getting that day school education. That's the kind of things we still remain the largest, most wealthy, Jew most educated Jewish community in history. We have a lot to stand for and we have a lot of work to do. Just a couple other things because I'm <clears throat> mindful of our time. C Big Ten Judaism, as far as I'm concerned, is a value construct. We are not and have never been a monolithic community. Diversity is our continuity, not being homogenous. What that means is that we have to make room in our tent for people with whom we disagree, and we have to support their right to be there. 
That's what it means to be in a big tent Jewish community. If I talk about Israel, which is my 11th item in a 10 item um, list, there is virtually no place in the American Jewish community to have a safe conversation about Israel. The right wing has forced the eruption of the left. In other words, by the Federation adopting, let's call it the APAC position, they have unintentionally created J Street because there's no place for conversation. There's no place for a respectful, respecting dispute among people. And if that's taking place about Israel, it's also taking place about lots of different kinds of issues. Two last points. That is, <clears throat> the majority of marriages today are, in fact, intermarriages. And the only response to intermarriage in the American Jewish community is welcome. We have to begin to say not intermarriage as its biggest problem or its biggest challenge, but its greatest opportunity. Had I been the author of Jewish history, I may not have written it the way we have it, but I wasn't the author of Jewish history. I'm simply encountering what my parents and grandparents bequeathed to me. When my grandparents, who were Russian, came to the United States, they came to the United States to be, as Lyndon Johnson used to say, fully American. <laughs> Remember he used to say it that way? And the fact that intermarriage is on the rise is a result of American Jewish success, not failure. It means that as my grandparents, who were impoverished from Russian shtetls, hoped that we would become fully American. The reason why intermarriage was low in the last generation or lower in the last generation was not because of more Jews marrying non-Jews. It was because non-Jews weren't interested in marrying Jews in the last generation. Why would you want to cast your lot with a vulnerable people? Now that we have become equal and there are no quotas, no professional quotas, no social quotas, no educational quotas, any of those kinds of things, it's not only great, but you see all kinds of magazines now saying, oh, Jews make the greatest Jewish husbands, Jews make the greatest Jewish wives, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to be responsive to that. The reform movement last week, I think, said that 50% of its membership was intermarried. My experience is that on the synagogue level, it's closer to 30, 35%. We have a couple of reform rabbis here. They may want to add to it. But in the religious school population, it's 50%. So what that means is that the population, uh, the younger population, is in fact intermarrying. We're not going to get higher than it is because the New York community and the Orthodox community kind of mitigate the intermarriage rate. But if you remove them from that constellation, the intermarriage rate is above 75% in the United States. So what that means is that nothing that has been attempted with regard to the so-called prevention of intermarriage in the past is effective. And just like Yitzhak Rabin realized that as a soldier, he had to change his approach to peace, we have to change our approach to intermarriage as well. Damning those who intermarry is no way to grow the American Jewish future. And if I just choose one statistic from Pew, it said that 66% of intermarried families were raising their children with a Jewish identity. 
Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of debate about what that means, a Jewish identity, because we compartmentalize, our, our children compartmentalize identity in different ways than we do or did. But it means that anything over 50% actually grows the Jewish community. It's very simple math. If two Jews marry one another, they create one family with one set of children. If two Jews marry two non-Jews, they create two, two families and twice the number of children. So anything over 50% actually increases the community. Now, our job is to help forge a path from their intermarriage into the Jewish community because the end of Jewish continuity is not intermarriage. It's not raising Jewish children. And that's what we have to change the conversation away from who you're marrying to how you're raising your children. We can't blame intermarried families for not raising Jewish children if the institutions that we have built in order to help encourage Jewish education, Jewish identity, et cetera, are closed to them. You may have seen the debate recently about whether or not patrilineal Jews should be admitted into the Schechter school system. Just as one example, Ramah, Camp Ramah still debates about it. Do you know that Chabad summer camp allows patrilineal Jews into its camp? Why? It's very simple, because they believe in what they're teaching. Because any rabbi who has a kid for a month and his family, if he or she can't convince within that month of seven, eight hour days that my way of thinking is appropriate, then they're not worth their salt as a rabbi. That's why they're not afraid. They know that they can make that convincing. Rabbi Michael Siegel, Anche Amith in Chicago, Illinois, he allows a conservative rabbi, he allows patrilineal kids in his religious school. And when they become 13, he gives them a choice and he says it's now time for a completion ceremony because he's very sensitive to the language. And it's, it's a conversion ceremony because as a conservative rabbi, he doesn't buy patrilineal descent. But he understands what's the difference between patrilineal and matrilineal Jews? A dunk in the mikveh. That's all we're talking about. These are not non-Jews. Non these are not halachic Jews from a halachic framework. I like to say, and I said this to the conservative rabbis I met with about 10 days ago at a think tank, I said, where there's a will, there's a halachic way. <laughs> and I, I firmly believe that. If you want to ideologically open yourselves up to intermarried families, you can. So <clears throat> let me just uh, conclude with the way I began, and then I'll open it up to questions. <clears throat> and that is that the question of the former generation might have been why be, how to be Jewish. The question of this generation is why be Jewish. Unlike lots of things that are not in our control, <clears throat> the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, <clears throat> the, the nuclear uh, agreement with Iran, we don't have much control over it. We can try to influence our congressmen and women. We can try to influence our senators and our other elected representatives, but we can't do it ourselves. The difference with this is the future of the Jewish community really is in our hands. The way we respond to the challenges that I've set forth today will in fact determine the future landscape of the Jewish community that we bequeath to our children and our grandchildren. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Hi. First of all, thank you so much. Um, I work with the Jewish Federation with our national population and with families with young children, with my young colleague over here, Stephanie. 
And um, we are using, we are both um, doing the JOI public tent, um, public tent Judaism program and our affiliates are in process. And a lot of the programs we do are these public space types of programs and a lot of them are Shabbats or surrounding Jewish holidays. And we find that those are amongst our most successful programs, more people come. And those who come are saying, we had no idea there were this many young Jews in Orange County. And they're excited about it. But at the same time, ironically, it raises concern and ire amongst some of the clergy, sorry, I don't think any in this room, about what we're doing. And oh, you're doing Shabbat. Is there a ritual element to that? Because you know we do that, we're the synagogues. So there's that mindset. How do how do you how do you address that challenge, or how do you recommend communities address that challenge and kind of change that that mindset? Well, I, I think that part of the issue is whether or not you believe that consensus is important for progress. You know, if you believe that you have to build consensus again amongst the rabbinate, for example, in order for the federation to move forward, that's a value that you have to work toward. And then the issue is you have to demonstrate what's the benefit to them. <clears throat> Very simple. If you look at any campaign in the United States among federations, the vast majority of contributors are, in fact, synagogue members. So it's in the best interest in this particular case for federation to actually promote a campaign for synagogue membership, which it's, I've never seen one federation do that. So if you demonstrate that there's value in what I'm doing for you, then you'll build consensus among rabbis and understand that kind of support. JCCs are in a similar predicament because JCCs are now going to begin, if they haven't already in your community, they're beginning life cycle events, and uh, etc. And it all has to do with playlist Judaism because the issue is that rabbis have lost hegemony over life cycle events in the community. If you open up the New York Times on Sunday and you look at the weddings, most of the weddings, whether they're between Jews and non-Jews, or Jews and Jews, or Jews and Christians, are officiated by my next door neighbor who got a license for the day, or my friend from college who got a license for the day in order to officiate. So the issue is that we have become, as part of this playlist notion, we've created destination Judaism. And destination bar mitzvahs, for example, which used to mean the Masada or the wall in Israel, now means the hotel down the street. Why? Because again, you aren't going to tell me how to determine what my Judaism is going to look like. It's this notion, one of the items that I listed on the sheet that I didn't really explore in depth is this notion of decentralization. Decentralization is the new direction that is implicit in playlist Judaism. We're not taking direction from any centralized authority. It's the reason why the URJ has less um, direction for the local reform congregations. The JFNA has less direction for the local federation. The JCC has, A has less direction for the JCC because we no longer have control of our constituency any longer. And it's the same thing that's played out on the local level. The local individual doesn't want the local institution to control their Judaism. So there are lots of ways to explore it further, but that's just one example. Yes? Uh, you opened and closed quoting the question, why be Jewish? What efforts are being made to empower synagogues, families, Jewish institutions to answer that question? Um, they have the power to do it. I, I think the question is, are they, are they taking up the challenge? Meaning there are too many people who say, that's not my responsibility. 
And what I'm arguing is if you don't rise up to that responsibility, people won't engage your institution. Um, you know, one of the things that American culture has taught us is to vote with our feet. And that's what's taking place. Again, we can say, well, we want to be a leaner, meaner American Jewish community, and those people won't participate. But on the other hand, I think institutions have to begin to answer that question. Why should I participate here? Why did you come today? Start there. Why did you come today? And did, and this is an evaluation of the speaker, did I meet your objectives? Did I meet Mary Ann's objectives? Did I meet Ari's objectives? I mean, that's what we have to begin to see. Take the central um, issue in, in the synagogue. Synagogues are built around the one institution which its memberships participate least in. It seems counterintuitive to me. If it's built around prayer, then that's what should lead the institution. If it's not built around prayer, then why do we spend 90% of our time, money, and efforts on the prayer initiative in the synagogue? If it is built around prayer, then you look at prayer the way I would as an educator. What's the objective? When I go to the service in the morning on Saturday, what am I supposed to come out with? Well, I'll give you a one-minute uh, summary of a longer presentation. And that is that I believe that the purpose of prayer on Saturday morning is encapsulated in the very last line spoken in the liturgy, which is, what's the last thing that happens while everybody's putting, on their, putting away their talus, running out to the Kiddush? What's going on? What's the very last thing? No, before Shabbat Shalom. What's the song? Adon Olam. What's the last line in Adon Olam? Uh, two words before that. Adonai li velo ira. Translated as Rabbi Bizno? Adonai li velo ira. The Lord is for me and I'm Right. God is with me. The Lord is for me. God is with me and I am not afraid. For me, that's the objective that's supposed to be met in the Saturday morning service. I've just spent three hours in a liturgical environment with Torah and prayer in order to embolden me to face the day ahead, to face the world in front of me. Now, if your service doesn't do that, then it's a broken ritual. That's the way we have to begin to look at all of our institutions, including the core of prayer. Now, you may say that's not the purpose of that service, which is okay, but then let me know what the purpose of your service is, and let me make sure that having sat through three hours of liturgy, much of which I can't engage in, did, does in fact that. And I'm picking on synagogues, but I would do the same thing with any other institution. Yes? Sure. Um, when I hear what you're saying, it sounds like you are arguing for an evangelistic type of Judaism that proselytizes to the, you know, and that, I'm not, I'm, you know, without saying whether I'm personally in favor or, or it's good or bad, is it, it, there's a, a kind of a buried ethic in Judaism that we don't proselytize and we don't evangelize. How do you reconcile that? Okay, so let me answer your first implicit question, which was, I don't think that there's a buried ethic that we don't evangelize or we don't proselytize. I think that that simply was about xenophobia more than anything else, and it was a fear about our neighbors, so we turned inside in order to protect ourselves from the outside. Be that as it may, I don't think what I have said today is about evangelizing and proselytizing. Although I could have a very nice conversation about you with you about why I think we should 
because I think that that's a positive value, but that's not what I was talking about today. When I talk about, for example, Passover in the matzah aisle, I'm talking about people who are there shopping for Passover products. I'm not going up to somebody and asking them, are you Jewish? I'm engaging them where they are. I'm creating welcoming institutions so that when you do enter the door, you will feel welcomed and embraced. Quite frankly, this institution is not a welcoming and embracing institution. This campus, it's a very large foreboding institution that you have to navigate in order to enter this place. Now, I'm sorry to be critical of my hosts, but if you want people to come here, you have to make it easier for you to be here. I mean, when I go to Home Depot, when I get to the front door, which is very clearly marked, Handy Andy is standing there welcoming me in and asking me if I can be of help, if he can be of help or she can be of help and find anything in that store. And that's not because Bernie Marcus is one of our big supporters at JOI. But it's true. I mean, so what are we doing here? The first encounter I have in this institution is a security guard kind of walking around the parking lot. I walk into the institution. Uh, the, the, I picked the right door. I walked into the door. The receptionist um, had no idea who I was, whether I was coming, where I was going to go, any of those kinds of things. And I knew what I was doing. And I was tenacious about it. What about those people who are hesitant, et cetera, et cetera? So, yeah, two minutes. Last couple of questions. Yes, I'd like to personalize some of your remarks. Only if it's a question, because we only no, have not, two. No, a question. No, yes, intended as a question. Okay. As, as, a, as, as a grandparent, and I think I speak for some others in this audience, I, I have children who, uh, asking the question, why be Jewish, is as remote in their thinking as anything we could imagine. So how would a grandparent make this uh, prospect of, uh, of looking into their lives and, and, and consider the prospect of becoming uh, or, or of looking into Judaism. At this moment, they're just too busy and they just don't understand about anything we've been talking about. Yeah, it's a larger question that you're asking than I probably can answer in the time left, but let me simply say, A, be the best you that you can be meaning you have to demonstrate the values that are important to you. You have to walk the walk, not just the talk. And secondly, I'm not explicitly saying you answer the question when it's asked. I'm talking about you answer that question either individually or, in, or institutionally in everything you do. And the third most important is it's not that they don't want to be Jewish. They don't want to be your Jewish. That's something that every generation has trouble getting over. Your, it ain't your father's Oldsmobile any longer. And so the Judaism that they want to practice, we have to affirm and value even though it's not the Judaism that we were raised to be. Look, I was trained and socialized in a particular way. It took me a long time to shake off the way I was socialized as a rabbi, as a pulpit rabbi, as a reform rabbi. I don't look that way any longer. We have to look the same way as individuals, they're not going to do Judaism the way you do it. And once we understand that and we're prepared to value that and affirm it, then we can answer those questions about why be Jewish. Last question. Uh, who didn't have a, did you ask one? Okay. I'll be glad to answer them afterwards. I'm thrilled to hear this and it seems to me that the big institution we're overlooking is the home. And you talked about decentralized Judaism. 
How about distributed Judaism in the home? The first teachers are the parents. And I respect what you just said in the answer to this gentleman's question. How do we bring the distributed Judaism into the home? That's where Jews are made, not in the synagogue. That's fine. Then, then what we have to do is to change the structure of our educational programs, etc. Um, again, when I used to teach, I used to talk about family systems as the vehicle. So instead of looking at the student as the uh, or the individual as the student, we have to begin to look at the family as a student and bring social work theory into it. Instead of bringing everybody into the synagogue for model Shabbat programs, we have to go into your home and model Shabbat if that's a value, etc. So there are lots of different ways to raise up the family. The issue is, again, the family was the primary vehicle. It's no longer the primary vehicle, and institutions are being asked to do what families used to do, and we were forced to supplement. If we want to go back to the family, then we have to build our institutions around the family. Our institutions are not built around families. And if we value that, then we have to do it. I'd be glad to stay um, afterwards. I don't want to take the time of those people who are continuing. I think somebody wants to say goodbye. Um, some of these ideas are explicated in my book, Playlist Judaism. Many of them are available in terms of um, the work that we do at the Jewish Outreach Institute, for, whom, for which any of you are welcome to participate as ambassadors, as participants in any of our programs. And I'd be glad to communicate with you about those as well. Thank you very much.